Thank you. It's, uh, it's great to be here. Um, let, me, let me start you off with some words from a, a famous Broadway star. Maybe that will be helpful. Alexander Hamilton. When he was making the argument for the adoption of the Constitution, the Federalist Papers, uh, he was a believer in the hard sell. So that he has in common with our current president, along with being a New Yorker uh, and, uh, and a businessman. And he was just saying that, you know, because of the brilliantly designed political system, which included the Electoral College, we're really never going to have uh, someone who's not suitable be president, as you can see uh, from this quote. Affords uh, no less than a moral certainty that the office of president will never fall to the lot of any man who is not in an eminent degree endowed with the requisite qualifications. Talents for low intrigue and the little arts of popularity may alone suffice to elevate a man to the first honors in a single state, but will require other talents and a different kind of merit to establish him in the esteem and confidence of the whole union. So, okay, so much for prediction. Uh, It's not just in 2016 that people got it wrong. I, I would think, actually... Even before this election, there would be people who would read this quote and and mock it. Of course, it's important to remember, Alexander Hamilton said the electors were going to be making autonomous decisions. If that were the case, I don't think we would have this president. When Mark showed you that chart about that this election was sort of on the money in terms of forecasting, all those forecasters are looking at the popular vote. It's too hard to model the Electoral College. That's 51 elections. So, and Hillary Clinton did win the popular vote. So some of these guys will say, well, you know, our prediction was fine. So uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, putting it in context. Now we're in, the, in governing. The election is over. In a, in a way, we're in the phase of the permanent campaign. And, but, but decisions are being made. People are being appointed. So we have to talk about governance a little bit and put that in some context. First thing is... I want to talk about uh, Donald Trump. He's unique uh, in American political history. There has never been a president with no experience uh, in politics. Um, I mean, I just want to step back for a second. I mean, I can talk about some of the things about his background, but just just on a more personal note, I mean, I'm uh, we all of us panelists are children of the Cold War, and if you told me as a boy when I was a boy that I would be going to East Berlin to talk about the troubles of American democracy. I would have been really surprised. No, and, 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 and you know, in a more somber way, I'm also so I'm not just a product of the Cold War, but I'm the child of a refugee. Uh, my mother was born in Antwerp in 1938, uh, and she left in 1940, and just that date can probably uh, tell you why she left and tell us something about my family. And if you said that I would be coming to Germany uh, to talk about a government that, you know, is uh, hostile to immigrants of a different religion and to refugees and be coming to, uh, to Germany where the government has a very different view, I would have been very surprised, too, as a boy. So this is some serious business. I'm glad to get laughs, but it's a serious moment, too. So Trump is unique. Uh, among all American presidents, uh, the large majority of American presidents were elected to uh, lesser office. Uh, those who weren't uh, either uh, served in the cabinet the way Herbert Hoover and uh, William Howard Taft did uh, to, to talk, uh, talk about presidents in the 20th century who weren't elected, or like Dwight Eisenhower, were generals and war heroes. Um, and Trump's 
military experiences of that he went to a military academy instead of high school because he was a problem student and hitting teachers in junior high. So, so he doesn't fit the kind of historical pattern of presidents in terms of uh, occupational background and experience. And I think everybody knows that. And I have to say, some people in America thought that was a plus. In addition to the white nationalism that explains some of the appeal that he had, his populism, and mostly just partisanship, people voting for the Republican candidate, whoever he was, whoever, there were people who liked the idea that he had no political experience. You know, politicians are corrupt. Politicians are bad. Politicians talk. They don't do anything. So let's bring in somebody from the outside uh, who is a great, allegedly, a great success in business. Um, I'm mentioning that because I don't know how much attention that gets internationally, but those are actually some of the more benign reasons that people voted. They may be misguided, but they're some of the more benign reasons that people voted for Trump. I just want to put that on the table. But what's remarkable, not only he has no experience in government, but his key aides in the White House don't either. Reince Priebus worked in party politics only. Kellyanne Conway worked in campaigns uh, only. Uh, Steve Bannon was a Tea Party activist, a businessman. Jared Kushner, the son-in-law-in-chief, um, right? His main credential is being married to Ivanka Trump. And, and, and before that, like Trump, he was the son of a wealthy developer. Um, so it's not just that the president comes from the outside. It's all the people around him, uh, for the most part. The, uh, two exceptions, Steve Miller worked as the aide to Senator Sessions, the new attorney general, and um, uh, General Flynn was the director of the Defense Intelligence Agency. He was fired from that position. And so this is it for the White House staff. In the cabinet, uh, there are also going to be several appointees who have no experience in politics. And those who do, and there are several who do, what's interesting about that, and it's very unusual, is when the, those who have experience, some of them were in the Congress. Some of them were, a, a couple of them were governors, Normally, you would expect an administration to draw from people who had served in the previous administration of their party, maybe people who had mid-level appointments, who were in their 40s when the, the last time the party was in power, and some of them would go into the cabinet. That's what Obama did. That's what Bill Clinton even did that with some people from the Carter administration, which wasn't very successful. And Trump has almost no one from the Bush administration. And so that's remarkable. It's a change. So... His policies also mark a shift from all post-war American presidents of either party. And that's true, especially in the area of foreign affairs. And uh, many issues, he's changed positions. He used to be uh, pro-choice. He used to support gun control. On positions like this, he has changed his stance to adapt to what the base of the Republican Party wants. So it's not that he's not flexible and opportunistic on a lot of issues. But, where he's, but then he's not distinctive from other Republicans. Uh, the positions on abortion and guns, which in Europe seem strange, would have been adopted by any other Republican president. Where he is different is mostly on foreign policy and on matters of race. He's protectionist. He's anti-immigration anti-alliances like NATO and institutions like the UN, anti-foreign aid. And this is different, as I say, from every American president since Franklin Roosevelt of either party. It's a big change, and I don't think any of the other Republican nominees, had they been chosen, would have done all of this. And then the white, uh, white nationalism. Part of what's so jarring about him is... Um, his his uh, we have to talk about norm violations, just not behaving the way people expect a presidential candidate to behave, and certainly the way a president should behave, in ways that are trivial 
in ways that are, are more serious. Um, and, you know, people talk about the American Constitution being written down, the British Constitution being unwritten and understood, and I think that's kind of overdrawn. It, it turns out, and Trump is ed- in education on this point, there are a lot of norms in American politics. We have a very clunky political system. And to the extent that it's worked well, it's because a lot of norms have been followed by leaders of both parties. Trump out of a combination of ignorance and not being socialized in the political system, I think was initially unaware of a lot of these norms to the extent that they're explained to him. I don't think, obviously, that he cares about them, so it's a combination of ignorance and indifference that, again, I think is somewhat different from some of the other Republicans. Um, and you know, some of this is trivial and uh, comes from his kind of show business, television, reality star background. So when he announced his choice for the Supreme Court the other day, which was one of his more successful and I think more astute moves so far, um, he did it in prime time to maximize the audience. He, he had suspense. He let, he let people know there were two finalists for this position, and supposedly they were both on their way to Washington. Now, I mean, this is in some way disrespectful to the other judge, is trivializing, um, but it's showbiz. And, you know, Ronald Reagan, people say, okay, he had the background in show business, but much more conventional political figure than Trump. By the time he was president, he had been governor of the largest state. He didn't do quite this kind of thing. But that's kind of trivial. As I say, it hurts the feelings of one of the judges, but not big consequences. In more serious ways, there are norms that had evolved that Trump has um, disregarded. He has not revealed his income taxes the way all presidential candidates of both parties did in the last 40 years. And it's not that people didn't ask him to. Um, He uh, refused to create a real blind trust. The Trump uh, real estate empire is being managed by his sons. If anyone thinks that's an arm's length arrangement, it's just ridiculous. What we see more recently, and this is in the news because of the immigration issue, uh, attacking federal judges by name. Now, it's been known that presidents have said, I want judges who interpret the Constitution strictly, activist judges are wrong, but that's a kind of generic statement. To single out judges, individual judges on the bench and attack them uh, is dangerous and, and violates norms and is not something that was routinely done by previous presidents of either party. He did it in the campaign against a judge on a really on a racist, nativist way, saying, well, this judge is Mexican, so I'm not going to get a fair shake from him. Uh, the judge was born in the United States. His parents immigrated from Mexico. The current judge he's attacking happens to be white uh, and not, I think, a product of recent immigration. But still, it's remarkable uh, in context, uh, and it's certainly a violation of norms. And, uh, you know, making false, wild, irresponsible, baseless statements. Again, people in politics sometimes don't tell the whole truth. And that's not a sin that's limited to either party. Uh, President Obama said, if you like your health care plan, you can keep it. That turned out not to be true for everybody. Uh, Bill Clinton said, you know, we know what Bill Clinton said. Uh, And even on important matters like the Gulf of Tonkin uh, resolution, which led to the Vietnam War, a president was not completely truthful, Lyndon Johnson. So there, but... A lot, those lies, in a way, even if they're not admirable, were understandable. It was understandable why Bill Clinton lied. Lyndon Johnson thought that if he let Vietnam fall to communism, he would be destroyed politically, but that people didn't want to actually start a war. So he thought the public was uh, kind of very fickle and uh, sort of, as uh, in the famous movie, uh, the line goes, uh, they can't handle the truth. Uh, these lies 
And, and they are lies in some cases, that uh, statements that Trump is making, almost certainly. Because if they're not lies, he's seriously delusional. And that's not comforting either. Um, these lies are gratuitous. Look, George W. Bush, he also did not win the popular vote. He was the duly elected president. He had the majority in the Electoral College. Fine. He didn't feel the need to say, oh, no, I really did win the popular vote. And he, he came closer to it than Donald Trump. So this is bizarre um, and certainly a violation of all sorts of norms. Um, and this is just one of many. There's just a long list of these kind of statements. But there is a context here. I don't, because we can talk about the personality of Donald Trump, his unique background. But um, there's a larger context, um, you know, because there are all sorts of uh, odd people walking around the street, but most of them don't get 46% of the vote. So what's going on with those other people? So the context is that there is a polarized party system in the United States. It's very stable. Uh, in, in recent decades, we talked about the red-blue map. And for all the discussion about how Trump changed the map, he changed it very little. The states that he won unexpectedly, which were his margin of victory, Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, were always closely fought and contested states. He, you know, he did not break through in California or in his native New York or in any place that was really a solidly democratic state. He just did a little better than expected in the right places, and it turned out to be enough. But the, the, the balance between the parties is quite stable. Most voters no longer split their ticket. They vote up and down the ticket for president, for senate, for governor, for local office, for candidates of the same party. That was not true, uh, even in the 80s and 1990s. Uh, and the parties at the national level have a very insecure hold on office. Control of Congress uh, has swung back and forth. Uh, unlike when Mark and I were growing up, when the Democrats were the majority in Congress in the House for 40 years, and people in both parties expected that and thought it was the normal state of affairs. Uh, the even balance between the parties brings out the nastiness between them because the people out of power think they can gain power. The people in power uh, are insecure. And so norms were in decline even before Trump came on the scene. And that's important to mention. Tactics like shutting down the government by the Republicans, first under Clinton and then under Obama, calling into question the debt uh, the debt via the debt ceiling, routinely blocking nominations for office at levels that hadn't been controversial before, uh, ju for judgeships below the level of the Supreme Court, for positions even below the cabinet level. Um, and then in 2016, we saw just refusing to even consider President Obama's nominee for the Supreme Court, Merrick Garland, uh, waiting a year on the gamble that the public will not punish them for obstructionism, a gamble that paid off. Uh, so the public is part of the story here. And we've seen some responses, even though I think most of this, and political scientists would agree, most of this is coming out of the Republican Party. We call this asymmetric polarization. Democrats have responded and done things that are unprecedented. There are more no votes against President Trump's nominees to the cabinet than we've ever seen, even without the power to filibuster and block uh, cabinet nominations, which no longer exists because the Democratic Senate in 2013 abolished it because the Republicans were being obstructionist and blocking President Obama's nominees, even then, now Democrats are delaying all these votes as long as possible. Uh, and so there's increasing tension on Capitol Hill. Uh, the old cozy ways of doing business have gone by the wayside because of bitter partisan strife. And 
that's the context in which many voters are just going to vote for any Republican candidate uh, against Hillary Clinton, be it Donald Trump or anyone else. And they're not going to believe some of the things that are said about him because you can't believe the media because the media is biased. That's the mindset of a large number of people. And that's the context in which Trump can arise and can survive. What can he do? He's in office now, as everybody knows. So there are a few uh, scenarios I want to just very quickly talk about. Unilateral action. We saw with the immigration executive order, the president can make unilateral steps that are important. And that's especially true in foreign policy and military affairs. If he wants to drop some bombs, he can drop some bombs. Uh, If he wants to withdraw from an international agreement, in many cases he can do that. And he wouldn't be the first president who's done that. Just to take an example, President George W. Bush withdrew from the uh, anti-ballistic missile treaty uh, in his first term in office. The treaty had a provision. Congress doesn't have anything to say about that. President Trump can do that kind of thing. In the domestic sphere, though, the impact of executive orders is much more limited, and they are subject to review by courts, as we're seeing now. Uh, And in domestic sphere, courts feel much more empowered to make decisions. Immigration, seen both as a foreign policy and a domestic issue, Uh, and his appointees can use their discretion. So when the attorney general is Jeff Sessions and there's a voting rights complaint that comes up from Alabama or South Carolina, it's going to make a big difference who receives that complaint in the Justice Department, which cases are prosecuted, which cases are not. That's not up to Congress. Some measures uh, he can pass with a simple majority uh, in both houses, as long as he can continue to work with the Republicans in Congress. And um, the, the budget reconciliation process allows for a simple majority vote, and many important matters can be folded into that. That's one of those in a year, but a lot can be done. But most ordinary legislation will require 60 votes in the Senate under the parliamentary rules that exist now. And I think what's interesting, I don't think Republicans want to change those rules, Republican senators. Um, As individual politicians, these rules empower them. uh, They also have cover. There are a lot of things they want to be able to tell their supporters that they were for that they know would not go so well if they actually were implemented. And being able to hide behind procedure is very useful for politicians of both parties. So I actually think that if the Democrats try to block the Supreme Court nominee, uh, Neil Gorsuch, they will abolish the filibuster for judicial, for Supreme Court nominations only. But they don't want to get rid of it for legislation. And that is going to constrain what Trump and the Republicans can do. To take just one very brief example, the Affordable Care Act, also known as Obamacare, a lot can be done via the budget reconciliation process. So it could be, let's say, seriously maimed and uh, beaten beyond recognition. It cannot be wholly repealed through that process, almost certainly, uh, unless there was really a parliamentary coup violating a lot of rules. Uh, And so to get rid of provisions like the fact that insurance companies have to provide coverage to everyone regardless of pre-existing condition, which they say they don't want to abolish, but that's just one example in the bill, that would require 60 votes uh, unless they change the rules, and I don't think they want to change the rules. And so uh, to repeal the Dodd-Frank financial regulatory reform that people have probably studied uh, on, that, that was passed after the Great Recession, that would also require 60 votes in the Senate, and I don't think they have those votes. So there are some constraints 
even in the legislative sphere as well as um, in the judicial sphere, as we've already seen. Okay, that's for now. But in America, there's always another election. Uh, so going into the realm of the speculative, what about the election that we're going to have towards the end of next year? Uh, President Trump is not up for election, but the Congress is. Uh, one-third of the senators, all 435 U.S. representatives, and about three-quarters of the governors and state legislatures. Now, typically, the president's party loses ground in the midterm elections. And how the president is viewed has a big impact on this. The last time this was not true was in 2002 when George Bush was very popular because of the rally effect, uh, what they call the rally around the flag effect. He became very popular after the September 11th attacks because he became the symbol of the country. Uh, and then after, around the time Bill Clinton was being impeached, the Republicans who were attacking him also lost seats in the midterm elections. But before that, you have to go back to the 1930s to find a time when this didn't happen. So I expect that this effect will uh, be visible in 2018 to some degree. The question is to how great an extent. Right now, President Trump's approval ratings are at or below the level of uh, Barack Obama's approval ratings in 2010 when the Democrats lost the House of Representatives. So there's some reason for Democrats to be encouraged right now. Typically, the president's ratings start out high and decline. The big recent exception is George W. Bush. Uh, we don't know what's going to happen if there's another major a terror attack. Trump has already tried to lay the groundwork to blame the judiciary if there is such an attack. So he's already anticipating that. But Normal, you know, in normal situation, you would expect that his ratings will not be above where they are now. They're not great now, and that's encouraging for the Democrats. There are a couple of mitigating factors. Only one-third of the seats in the Senate are up for election, and most of those happen to already be held by Democrats. Uh, 2012 was a good year for Democrats. So the upside is very limited. It's hard to see them winning more than two states unless there is really a total collapse on the part of Trump below the current level. And so if that's true, they would, not get, they would get to 50-50. The vice president, Pence, still breaks the tie. And so it's hard to see the Republicans losing the majority in the Senate. In the House of Representatives, uh, it is possible, but there are a couple problems. Number one, the map favors Republicans, in part because in some states the map was drawn to favor Republicans, and in part because Democrats live in a way that their votes are not optimized. Um, some cities are so overwhelmingly Democratic that Democrats are, you could say, wasting votes. The distribution across districts is suboptimal. So in 2012, a majority of people voted Democratic for the House of Representatives, but the Republicans retained control of the House anyway. Uh, and then the other thing is the Democratic coalition of voters, as it has evolved, uh, is disproportionately young and disproportionately non-white. And those are groups uh, who are not especially reliable voters. Fewer people vote when there isn't a presidential election. And the last time the Democrats won in 2006 in a midterm election and regained control of the House, the party was not quite as youth-oriented as it is today. And although it won most votes from African Americans, um, it was not quite as reliant on non-white votes as it is today. So those factors make it harder for the Democrats in the midterm election to gain, regain a majority, although I think they will gain some ground. So with that, uh, I'll stop and hope to hear some questions later. Thank you. Thank you.